Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. We're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're listening wherever you may be joining us from. Today is the last Sunday in November. We've completed Thanksgiving, and for a lot of us, we really feel like that Christmas now, the Christmas season anyway, is in full force. And this whole Christmas season, which we sometimes call the season of Advent, it brings a renewed sense of focus for a lot of people who follow Christ. Indeed, the fanfare that surrounds Christmas in the secular world often pushes Christians to latch on to the sacred things of the biblical Christmas story and what the Lord has done for us as we remember the birth of Christ. And so starting at the end of November and lasting sometimes even through early January, Christmas music, Christmas cards, Christmas get-togethers, Christmas television specials, and Christmas church messages flood our senses with just a smorgasbord of red and green colors, glistening snow on our Christmas cards and movies, and the smell of gingerbread cookies and other great things that we eat from our kitchens. So at best, people take pause to reflect on the Christ child born in Bethlehem, but even then, sometimes our perceptions of what happened that very important day of all days can be skewed. So for those who still send Christmas cards, a quick trip to any store, whether it be Hallmark or Dollar General, which is where we get our cards, will present all sorts of options. The covers of most Christmas cards feature usually some New England towns at night with the moon presenting a heavenly glow while a horse-drawn carriage leaves a wagon, wagon wheels in the snow or the marks of wagon wheels in the snow. We've got usually some whimsical animal creatures like mice, raccoons, reindeer, maybe even polar bears that are dancing on the cars. Someone's decorating Christmas trees and drinking Coca-Cola while rosy-cheeked angels fly around proclaiming peace to the world. Now, all of these cards often crowd out the explicitly religious ones, which we think of as the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, who usually in the nativity are surrounded by smiling farm animals, cute shepherds, and ornate wise men, all centering their gaze on the halo-adorned Jesus in the manger. And although the sentiments of these cards may be nice, I believe that they give us a very, to put it mildly, unrealistic view of what that first Christmas was like over 2,000 years ago. And I also find... As a minister, as a preacher, after hearing countless messages on Christmas and churches and other Christian avenues, it seems like to me it becomes hard to be original when telling the Christ story of Christmas in a fresh way that rekindles a passion to know Jesus, God who became man and who dwelt among us. The other day at school, in fact it was some time ago, there was a frequent substitute that comes to the school to sub that shared a video with me that had a multitude of unexpecting observers surprised by some clever Christians. In a busy mall somewhere in America, around Christmas time, people were rushing to and fro, purchasing gifts of every sort for every person on their list. Music was playing in the background. Christmas decorations towered over the normal mundane structures of the shopping mall and the noise of food courts, children, laughter, and even exhaustion, if that's a sound you can imagine, filled the air. Suddenly, a woman randomly stood up and began to sing the classic song, Ode to Joy, which we're more familiar with as Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. And as she continued to sing in the middle of this busy mall, 
several shoppers begin to give her perplexed looks. And right on cue, other people began to join in the singing as well. They were positioned all over the busiest sections of the mall, and the shoppers suddenly found themselves in the middle of what we call a flash mob of choir singers from a local church proclaiming the good news of Jesus' birth with some of the most familiar tunes in modern history. And for a lot of people, this sudden, unexpected outburst in the middle of nowhere seems a lot like a modern-day Christmas. Busy with work, children, shopping, cooking, sports, and the dozens of other activities that vie for our attention and time, Christmas seems to suddenly appear and vanish before we realize what has happened. And often in the process, we may hear the familiar story of Christmas, but the depth of what happened that day, again, over two millennia ago, may escape us. And as I often try to do, I would like for us to see the Christmas story through fresh eyes. No doubt we've heard the story before, whether it be from church, television, radio, books, or any other avenue. But this is often a very domesticated version, free from the depth and character the gospel writers so intricately sew into the story. Even Linus from Charlie Brown, sincere as he was when he pulled his thumb out of his mouth, clutched tight to his faithful blanket, and began to recite what Christmas is all about, to Charlie Brown and those standing on that stage can leave us with only a snapshot of that glorious day. You see, the Christmas that happened over 2,000 years ago did not happen with the clashing of bells, the thumping of carols, or the ringing of 100 million cash registers. First Christmas happened unexpectedly and really unnoticed for most people. But it was a Christmas gift that had been planned before the foundation of the world was laid. And it was a gift that would change the world forever. It wasn't a surprise, and it wasn't out of nowhere. Today's message is more of a Christmas preview message, kind of looking at the Christmas story from 20,000 feet, if you will. We're going to look at some of the characters of the biblical Christmas story, the role they played, and how they moved along and highlighted God's redemptive plan for the arrival of Jesus to earth some two millennia ago. It's interesting, in the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and Luke record what is commonly known as the birth story, the nativity story, the Christmas story, if you will. Luke giving us a little bit more detail than Matthew does, though they both offer a different perspective of the birth of Christ. I'll be reading from Matthew, or excuse me, I'll be reading from Luke this morning. Luke chapter 1, as Mary receives the announcement of all announcements when the angel Gabriel appears to her. This is Luke 1 beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, and just for context here, we're coming off the tail of a story where Elizabeth and Zechariah are told they're going to give birth to a son by more traditional means, a young man who will be known as John the Baptist. And so in the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our first look will be at Mary, the Virgin Mary. You know, for many Protestants, Mary has always been somewhat untouchable. We admire her, we recognize her role in the Christmas story, but many of us treat Mary as a passive woman dressed in a light blue robe that we mention once a year cautiously and then move on for fear that we might overstate her importance. And so as we set out our Christmas decorations in our home, we unbox the familiar nativity scene, we take the bubble wrap off the porcelain character of Mary, and we place her behind the baby Jesus as she affectionately looks on, surrounded by her bearded husband, a few shepherds, three wise men, smiling donkeys, and an angel holding a banner that reads, Peace on earth, goodwill to man. However, Mary, despite her quiet and reserved disposition we see on Christmas cards and in Christmas plays, was a lot more revolutionary than most of us think. We often hear today of feminist movements when we turn on the television or read the newspaper, but the Blessed Mother of our Lord could give the feminists of today a firm lesson in how to take a stand against tyranny and be a woman of influence and power. We first meet Mary here when the angel of the Lord makes the announcement of all announcements to Mary, the central declaration of human history and what we read and what we have read in Luke's gospel. Mary's life, of course, changed forever. Like many young Jewish women, she had planned to marry, in this case to an honorable man named Joseph. They would hope to have children and raise them according to Jewish customs, and they would worship the one true God. We know Mary loved God and was devout. She was favored by God. Certainly Mary's love for God, her faith, her trust in the Lord, had been seen by God. And pause for just a moment and take some things into consideration. Mary at this time was almost certainly a teenager if she was following what was the typical and normal customs of the day. We don't know her exact age, of course, but many scholars peg her age around 16 years old. Mary certainly never thought that her name would be written on the pages of history, much less that she would be selected as the mother who would give birth to the Messiah. As a little girl... She had heard all of the stories of her people, the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the dramatic deliverance of the Hebrews from the hands of the Egyptians, the thunderous display of God's power at Mount Sinai, and the declarations of the prophets of old had all narrowed to this moment, the moment when a teenage girl heard that she would give birth to a son, the one who would save people from their sins, her people, from their sins. At this point, Mary becomes the key person in God's redemptive plan. And I wonder what she must have thought. Of course, like you, I believe that 
at the appearing of our Lord when we are with him eternally, that we'll have the opportunity to talk to some of these people that we read about in the Bible. And so certainly I think that we'll have an opportunity to hear from Mary firsthand one day what she thought. But the promises of God may have seemed so distant, and now they came to pass, and Mary was instrumental in their fulfillment. And amazingly, her response is just as noteworthy. She submitted to the will of God in the declaration of the angel. Behold, she says, Behold, I am your servant of, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. She submitted knowing the possible scorn she would face from those around her, perhaps even her own family. She submitted not fully understanding what would happen, but knowing that God held her future in her hands, even as she held the Son of God in her womb. Most of us would gasp, in stunned disbelief to think that the fate of human history rested on the shoulders of two first-century teenagers, but it did. And you may have noticed Mary's first response to the angel, not of disobedience, but just a question. She says, but I am a virgin. The angel then tells Mary that her cousin Elizabeth had also conceived, and even though there were sharp contrasts that could be drawn between Mary and Elizabeth, Mary believed that the only person who could possibly understand this incredible miracle would be Elizabeth. And so she takes off to Elizabeth's home. Now, some of you have heard this sweet story, and this could take up a whole message in and of itself, but as Mary enters the home of Elizabeth, the child in Elizabeth's womb John the Baptist, who's in Elizabeth's womb, the forerunner of our Lord, leaps within her. Mary seems to receive a confirmation of her faith at this point, and she proceeds to deliver one of the finest pieces of Scripture in all of the Bible, what we call the Magnificent, because in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible that was used for centuries, the first word is Magnificent. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says, this is verse 46, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary may have repeated this beautiful hymn multiple times, and anyone who was in earshot would have known who she was referring to when she proclaimed that God would bring rulers down from their thrones and exalt the humble. Herod the Great ruled the area of Judea at the birth of Jesus, and he had proclaimed himself king of the Jews. Herod lived a constant a life of constant paranoia and mental instability. He was married ten times had two of his own sons killed for fear of treason and ordered that many people be executed on the day that he died, whenever that may have happened, to ensure a proper attitude of mourning throughout the country. Thankfully, this didn't happen. When he finally did die, most people were glad that he was dead. He had placed taxes upon the backs of the people to fund his massive building projects, the largest being the Jewish temple. Herod, however, was just a puppet of the greater rulers which were the Roman Empire. The scope of Rome's conquest had been unparalleled. Might 
was pinnacle in Rome, and if anyone dared to go against the empire, they might just find themselves crucified. But this did not stop Mary. Mary knew that a day of reckoning had now come. The kingdom of God had invaded planet Earth, and it was just a matter of time until rulers would be brought down and the humble exalted. And all of this takes place in the little town of Bethlehem. Our next look as we look at Christmas from 20,000 feet. You know, Bethlehem, to Christians, even the name sounds warm and welcoming. The name itself means house of bread. And Bethlehem had had great biblical significance. In the Old Testament, Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David. And interestingly, Jesus would refer to himself as the bread that came down from heaven in John 6. Nine months later, the time came for Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. The Old Testament prophets had foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The quote-unquote minor prophet Micah said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This is amazing to me, and follow this path here. God used the decree of a godless ruler in a pagan empire to take Mary and Joseph to a small town governed by an evil sovereign to fulfill a prophecy that had been spoken centuries earlier by a prophet who lived when Israel was far removed from its former days of glory. The prophets had long foretold of the day when God would send his Messiah, a new king, to bring a new world order that would restore the kingdom of Israel and make all things right. Isaiah, one of the major prophets, spoke of the birth and reign of the Prince of Peace. He said in Isaiah 9, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Certainly the Jewish people had waited for God's king to appear clothed in glory and power, march legions of warriors on the Roman Empire, and reclaim Israel's rightful place as the most powerful kingdom on earth. But few would have predicted that the birthplace of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would be where animals slept and his bed a feeding trough. God's arrangements for Jesus' entrance into the world tell us much about the God who loves you and me. When dignitaries visit foreign countries or even travel with their, their own borders, most of us take great interest in the logistics surrounding their trip. I did some research regarding travels of modern U.S. presidents. A couple of years ago, a trip to Columbus, Ohio, racked up quite the bill. According to the General Accounting Office, the plane that transport the president costs $69,000 per hour to operate. The Secret Service rings in at around $45,000 per day. So for a quick 13-minute speech to a nearby state, the total round-trip bill would approach or exceed over $200,000 again for a 13-minute speech. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite Christian authors who's authored multiple classics, including The Jesus I Never Knew, wrote about Queen Elizabeth II's visit to America some years ago. I like Queen Elizabeth. He wrote this, Reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. 
Her 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion, a morning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. In meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And then we have the shepherds. The famous shepherds, for the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flock by night, the announcement of the Savior's birth came suddenly. And as they approached the humble place of Jesus' birth, they saw God's greatest gift for all people. And as this was happening, I still wonder what Mary must have thought. The famous song, Mary Did You Know, will send chills through any sincere seeker. This child who had kicked against the Mary's uterus for nine months, is now breathing the stuffy air of a cave in Palestine. Did Mary truly know that this baby she held in her arms was the God that had hurled galaxies into existence from his fingertips, commanded the morning, and told the ocean the boundaries of how far to go? Did she understand that the cooing and crying of this child came from the same mouth that spoke light into existence and formed man from the dust of the earth? Did she understand that the tiny hands that clutched her finger would one day be nailed to a cross to save her from her sins. In the classic song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the author makes the astute statement, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And then we move on after the nativity story to look at a man by the name of Simeon. Now, for a moment, Mary and, jo- Mary and Joseph had enjoyed the sentimentalities of the birth of a fresh baby boy into the world. That is, until they visit the temple and they're greeted by some perplexing statements. They meet a man named Simeon. Simeon never shows up in a nativity scene, and he rarely has a part in Christmas plays. But God uses him to remind Mary and us that the babe in the manger had a destiny unlike that of any other. We read down in verse 25 of Luke 2 now. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace." according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, Jesus was moving on a time scale unlike that of any other. All the plans Mary and Joseph might have had for their child, as noble as they may have been, 
would be usurped by the divine plan of God. And Simeon's words reminded Mary and Joseph for this. Jesus had come for a purpose. And Joseph would no doubt recall that this purpose was to save God's people from their sins. And the angel, as the angel had told him months ago. And so Simeon reminded Mary and Joseph. And he also reminds us that we leave the baby in the manger at our own detriment. In our hearts and in our lives, Christ cannot stay the baby in a stable, but he must go to the cross because it is through Jesus Christ on the cross that we are saved and received atonement for our sins. Think with me for just a moment how profound this reality is. The God of glory, eternal, marvelous, magnificent, and infinite, descended from his throne in heaven and shrunk down, down, down to become a baby for one purpose, to die, to save you and me from our sins. The God who at one time seemed unknowable, we now call Father because of what Jesus Christ did for us. The Apostle John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, when you look at other religions, you will find many sacred rituals to make us right with God. We will find many rules and rites that we must follow to connect us with the divine. We will unearth many strange suggestions of how we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make it to heaven, but we will not find the cross of Jesus Christ. The world needs a Savior. The world needs a Savior. There is nothing that we can do except get on our knees before an almighty God repent of our sins, and ask him to save us from our sin. Our nation, our world, desperately needs a Savior, and it's for this reason that Jesus came. We're not merely sick. We are sinful. We are not merely struggling with being bad. We are dead in our sins. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him... We do not only have our calendar, but we have our new birth. Jesus Christ did not merely come to make bad people good. Jesus Christ came to make dead people live. You know, I always feel the need to prepare myself as we enter the Christmas season. From Thanksgiving, which we just completed all the way through New Year, life seems like a marathon. Granted, many good things happen during this time. We want to spend time with family, cook fun food, Maybe buy a few Christmas presents, watch a Hallmark movie or two, and make the season special. And this is, of course, topped off with the normal day-to-day operations of life with work, school, children, and a bunch of other things that can consume our time. And But before we know it, we wake up the day after Christmas and wonder, where did the time go? And so, friends, my prayer for the church, for myself, and for the world is that we would not catch a passing glimpse of Jesus this Christmas, but more so than ever before, that we would discipline ourselves to make him the center of our worship, the center of our homes, the center of our lives. Not merely in a hierarchy of, let's put God first, but put God as Lord of all. This will make our time with our family sweeter, our work more fulfilling, our worship more meaningful, and our lives richer. Because we have surrendered fully to the author of life. Even the cookies will taste better, I believe. Thank you for giving me a hearing this morning. Join me in prayer. 
Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we prepare now to enter just a few weeks before this Christmas season to echo what I've already said, God. Lord, my prayer for this church, the people of the church, the people listening, the prayer for my own heart and family is that this Christmas that we would see you as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, more than we ever have before and worship you for your grace, your might, and your goodness, God. Lord, to recognize what you have done for us was so beyond anything that we could have ever foresaw or imagined. Who would have ever thought how you would have orchestrated the entry of the Lord Jesus into this world, the Son of God, the Messiah? But Lord, you did it, and it's such a wonderful story that isn't merely fantastic, but it's fantastically true. God, help us to put you as Lord of all in all of our life so that we may worship you. And God, if there's anyone here, anyone listening, that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would call them to salvation and that they would soften their hearts and get on their knees before you and repent of their sin and confess you as their Lord and Savior. Thank you, God, for our time together this morning. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus and the marvelous gift of Christmas. In Christ's name I pray, amen.